Today's scripture reading is from Jonah 1, 17 to 2, 10. You can follow along behind me in your Bible app on your phone or a hard copy Bible in your pew, starting on page 774. So Jonah 1, 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd like to now invite Pastor Jeff, who will share on today's message titled, Undeserved Deliverance. Gospel-centered. Have you heard this term before? We use it sometimes to refer to living a gospel-centered life. We go to a gospel-centered church. We do gospel-centered ministry. Like, who wouldn't want these things, right? Can you imagine, like, welcome to Crossbridge. We are not gospel-centered. Well, what does gospel-centered really mean? Is it just another one of those popular terms that maybe this generation or next generation has come up with? Or does it mean something more? And so this morning I want to begin with a short video from Crossway that I think will kind of help us to get an idea of what it means to be gospel-centered. So let's take a look. As you watch the video, what were some of the things that stood out? What exactly is being gospel-centered? To me, some of the people I noticed in the video talked about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how everything about us finds its purpose in that. Another said that my life is no longer about me, but it's living in light of what Christ has done for me. Others mentioned about the gospel defining us, right? And then having all those things lived out in our lives. So when you talk about being gospel-centered, it means that the gospel, right, this good news of Jesus Christ becomes the filter by which our entire life passes through. It means that the gospel has an impact, a real deep impact on every aspect of our life, from our relationships to our ethics to our politics to our jobs to our health to our attitudes to our values and so on and so forth, right? That the gospel informs all these things. It informs our decisions in our relationships. It informs our life and it shapes it. A few years ago, when I was in New York, I was talking with another brother in Christ, and he had been meeting up with this person who was coming to our church for some time. 
This person who was kind of seeking and kind of wrestling with questions about God and faith and things like that. It turned out this, that this brother had shared, ended up sharing the gospel with him. This other guy had, had given his life to Christ, accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, which is great, right? Except the really strange thing was that after, almost immediately after this guy had given his life to Christ, then he stopped showing up. You see, up to that point, he was going to our church pretty often, right, to seek out this whole Christianity thing and to, about faith and God and what this all meant, right, who this, guy, who this God was. And then after he gave his life to Christ, he stopped coming as often. And so as I was chatting with this dear brother uh, who shared the gospel, he was reflecting to me and sharing from his own thoughts about how he had shared the gospel, but he can see that maybe he missed something. What he shared was that maybe he realized that he didn't really talk about what happens after you believe. And sometimes when we, when we have these gospel-centered conversations, it's about getting this person to the point of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then that's it. And so the brother I was talking with was, uh, said he wasn't surprised then that this guy had just stopped coming regularly. After all, right, he got what he needed. Salvation, this gift, right? Why, why does he need to continue to come? Now, what are some things that are challenging Iran, maybe, about this picture? And one of the things is that sometimes that we, we offer, we present this truncated view of the gospel. And so we reduce the gospel to this mere elevator pitch, a PowerPoint presentation, something that we rehearse and that we memorize, and we divorce the gospel from our very own life, our living. But if we learned anything from this video, we would see that the good news of Jesus has an impact on us, right? Isn't that what news is? Something that's already happened, something that's already been done. You can't do anything about it, but all you can do is respond to it. News changes us. All the more better when it is good news. What does this look like? Dr. Samuel Schutz, he's a professor of evangelism and ministry. He came up with this abbreviated list of how choosing Christ leads to conforming to Christ. And so I'm going to show a few of these, a few of these bullet points on these slides. It means professing the truth of God's loving sacrifice on our behalf, which then leads to leading, uh, uh, lead, leads to our loving sacrifice on God's behalf. It means Christ's death and resurrection, which then leads to our death to sin and our resurrection to a new life in Christ. It means professing the truth of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which then leads to our personal relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It means our individual life with God, which then leads to our corporate life in the church with others and with the world. It means professing the truth of being saved by grace alone, which then leads to a grace-filled life of obedience. It means professing the truth of being saved through faith alone, leading to a life of faithfulness. It means repentance at conversion, right? But then it leads to a daily life of repentance and renewal. And then it means having a future kingdom perspective on life and death, 
which then leads to a present kingdom perspective on life and daily living. So why am I beginning this message talking about being gospel-centered? What does that have to do with Jonah as we've been going through this sermon series? So in our passage today, as we read through it, we see that Jonah knows that God has saved him. Right? He himself says in this passage that salvation belongs to the Lord. But there's, I think, a disconnect there, somewhat of a disconnect. Right? Yes, he does express gratitude towards God, saving him in the form of this psalm, this psalm of thanksgiving, which I think is great. But then at the same time, we see also as we progress through the story of Jonah that that gratitude doesn't quite amount to too much. It definitely doesn't lead him to change the way that he thinks about Nineveh. So let's turn to our passage. And so what we find Jonah himself acknowledging in this psalm of prayer is this. That disobedience deserves death, but grace delivers life. Right? Jonah deserved death due to, due to his disobedience, but, but instead he was delivered life. And so where we left off in, in the book of Jonah, Jonah had just decided to off himself, to kill himself, rather than obey God's command to go to Nineveh. And so he's in the sea, right? And God appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's verse 17. And Jonah is in the fish for three days and three nights. And while he's in there, he prays to God this psalm of thanksgiving. And maybe you're picking up what Jonah's getting at in these first few verses, right? Jonah understands, he realizes his predicament. It's death. Like he's in the middle of the sea. He's not an Olympic swimmer. He's no Olympic swimmer. He's going to be able to swim back to shore. It's the middle of the storm, right? He's sinking below into the depths of the waters. He is at death's door. It is certain. If God had not intervened, he would have died. And so Jonah writes, verse 2, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Right? Sheol is this Hebrew word that, that can refer to the abode of the dead, the underworld, or simply the grave. And so verse 3, now Jonah acknowledges God's sovereignty again, something that we picked up from chapter 1. Right? You, you cast me into the deep. Your waves, your billows passed over me, even though it is my decision to disobey and to be thrown into the water, this death sentence was given by you, God. Verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. You know, Jonah thinks his life will end. A better translation of verse 4 might be that, you know, how shall I continue to look upon your holy temple? Verse 5, the waters closed in to take my life. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And so I think... I think we get the point, right? That Jonah realized that he is at death's door. And he deserved it due to his disobedience. But death did not have the final word. God intervenes and he rescues Jonah via the fish. And so the fish is mentioned at the beginning and at the end of our passage, right? You might have mentioned heard me say this before, right? They kind of functions as, as bookends to this chapter. In, in biblical studies, we call this an inclusio. It frames, it, it helps us to understand and capture what's happening in the middle. And so the fish swallowing up Jonah at the beginning and then spitting out Jonah at the end 
helps us to frame, to understand Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving. So Jonah saw this fish as a means of salvation, of deliverance, of God's grace to him. Right? Because without the fish, he would have drowned, he would have died. And so Jonah, deserving death due to his disobedience, instead he received life. And so with us as well, maybe not in the same sense per se, but we deserve death as well due to our own disobedience, our sinful rebellion, our, our posture, right? But instead we received life, new life by the grace of God. Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what we're talking about here is not physical death, but the, the death that we deserve is a spiritual death. And I always found it interesting that Paul uses the term wages, right? It might be an old word, right? Uh, but it's like a paycheck, right? It's, it's something that we earn. You put in your 40, your 50 hours a week. I don't know, some of you get paid weekly or monthly or bi-monthly or whatever. Some of you are still in school, right? But maybe you work your part-time jobs, you work your, do your work study, or maybe you do your chores, or you, you know, take out the trash and you earn this allowance that your parents give you. I don't know, right? And at the end of the time, when you get your paycheck, it's probably going to show how many hours you worked or what pay period it's for where you work for this week or that week, and therefore you earned this amount. This is what you worked for. You deserve it. These are your wages. Except in the case of Romans, what Paul is saying here is that what we have earned, what we deserve, is death. Now, our sin has deserved death. That's what we get paid. Death. That's our paycheck here, right? Due to our sin, due to our rebellion against God, due to our opposition, due to our disobedience. But the verse doesn't end there, does it? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? You see that contrast there, right? It's wages on the one hand, but a gift on the other. You can't deserve a gift. You can't even pay for a gift or earn a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. And let me, let me illustrate this for you. Right, for some of us, because of the culture uh, that we grew up in, we're terrible at this concept of gifts. Which is why maybe for some of us, like the gospel is really hard for us to grasp. Or maybe much more harder to accept. Because everything is transactional. And if it's not, then we find a way, we will find a way to turn it into a transaction. Like, and we're really good at that sometimes. So when I got married... We had two weddings. One was your typical American Christian one. We got married up here, right? And the other one was this Fuzanese wedding banquet. Some of you are familiar with these, you know, Chinese wedding banquets. My, my wife's side is Fuzanese. And, and both of these weddings, we, we kind of kept track of what people gave and how much, right? And, and later on, um, when some of these guests of my wedding had their own weddings, particularly those on my wife's side, uh, at this Fuzanese wedding banquet, what did we do? What was part of our culture there? Went back to the Excel spreadsheet, figured out how much of that red pocket money they gave us, and then gave them back the same, exact same amount. But that's not really a gift, is it? It's an interest-free loan. 
right? A gift is free to the person who is receiving it. You can't pay for it. Now, we know nothing of, uh, we know the saying, right, nothing in this life is free. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's always a cost. You know, you take, for example, those green TD Bank pens or some of the Crossbridge pens that probably are not there anymore out in the lobby because people uh, love to take them. And that's great because that's what they're there for, right? Uh, And and they're free to, to take, but it still costs something, right? We use budget or TD Bank uses budget to produce them. And with this free gift of eternal life from God, it still came at a cost. Someone had to pay. Someone had to pay. Jesus Christ paid that cost for us so that we could have this free gift. Sometimes we might still try to turn it into a transaction, right? Like, let me earn this. Let me earn this. Let me do something. Let me make it transactional. But that defeats the whole purpose of grace, of a free gift. Right, Titus 2, 11 says, It was by the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The book of Titus continues. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So disobedience deserves death, but grace delivers life. You can't pay for the gift. It's already been paid for. That's what grace is, right? Undeserved. Undeserved merit, favor, deliverance. But you can respond to it. One of the ways to respond to grace is through gratitude. And we see that in Jonah, what he does here in chapter 2. And so the second point is this. Gratitude grows out of an experience of God's grace and a realization of our predicament. We could spend a few sermons to talk about what gratitude is and what it looks like. But I wanted to make two points about gratitude for us this morning. One that I think is explicitly from the text and one that I think is inferred from the text placement in the overall story of Jonah. So the first is this. Gratitude declares that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? This is what Jonah proclaimed in his psalm of thanksgiving as he thinks about how God has saved him from the depths of the sea, from death itself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so at a basic level, this means that God saves. Right? Not vain idols. Jonah 2, 8-9, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their steadfast love, their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. So it's not these idols that save, not the idols that these sailors worship, not these idols that we ourselves might turn to for significance, for meaning, for deliverance, maybe not physical, but in whatever way that you might think about it. It is God who saves. And in our passage, Jonah begins to address God as his God. Right? He begins to take ownership of that relationship. Verse 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. Verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. 
Jonah knows that he's in this covenantal relationship with God. That's why he he says in verse 8, right, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The word for steadfast love is is hesed. It's this catch-all term that drives at God's goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness and his loving kindness and his covenantal loyalty. The things that we talked about when we preached through Malachi, right? Notice if you want to remember what the covenant is all about, boils down to this, this statement, I am the Lord your God and you are my people. That's the covenant. That's this relationship. And Jonah sees, takes ownership of this relationship that he has with, with God. God is his God. That's why verse 9 begins with a but, right? With a voice of thanksgiving, he declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. He worships God, not these vain idols. He knows that these idols cannot give him what God alone can. It would be pointless, worthless, futile to put your trust in something that is not trustworthy. That's why he calls these idols vain. It was God, not these idols, who appointed, right, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, thereby saving him from death. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I think there's an irony to this statement. You see, to say that salvation belongs to the Lord not, not only means that it is God and not the idols who saves, but that it is God and not anyone else who determines who to save. Whether that is us or those not like us. Now, I doubt maybe this is not what Jonah intended when he made this proclamation. Or if he did, maybe he had a very limited view of that meaning, right? After all, when we have gone through this book, right, this is what Jonah took issue with. That God in his grace would extend mercy to this other people group. To this nation, this other nation. Nineveh. Assyria. Right? But I think the author, Jonah, surely intended this, right? That the author maybe perhaps wants us to see the irony of this statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? If Jonah were to proclaim and mean that salvation belongs to the Lord, then that must also mean, whether he likes it or not, that salvation of even his enemies is determined by the Lord and not by him. Now, what difference does it make, especially for us, right? If gratitude declares that salvation belongs to the Lord, gratitude must also act, right? Gratitude must also act as if salvation belongs not to us, but to the Lord. You know, we don't get to choose who to proclaim the gospel to or vice versa. We can't say, well, we're not those people. These people don't deserve the good news of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I will refrain intentionally, purposefully from that, from being an agent of grace, of God's grace. In Jonah's case, God had specifically right, told him to go reach out to Nineveh. Sometimes you know, God may be leading you to reach out to this particular person 
whole group of people. Some of us are called to do missions overseas, but others of us are called to reach out to our family members, our friends, our neighbors. Perhaps for some of us, you don't have a particular conviction to have these gospel conversations with one specific person or one specific people group or another. And that's, that's okay. But what's not okay is not having a particular conviction to proclaim the gospel at all. And I think we need to be weary of confusing the two. Like we read in Matthew already, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. God may not have given you a specific command to go and make disciples of this one nation, this one people group, these types of people, right? Like he did with Jonah. And that's okay, but because he has already told us to go and make disciples of all nations. He's given us a commission. Gratitude declares that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? This means not only that it is God who saves, but also that it is God who determines who to save. We may not know exactly how people are going to respond to the gospel, but we do know that God has chosen the church to be the means. He has chosen us as his people. His instruments, his means, to be the means by which people hear the gospel and are saved. And he has called those who follow Jesus Christ to go to all the nations, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Second point about gratitude is this. That gratitude desires to do with delight what God desires. We're in chapter 2 of Jonah, right? We read through Jonah in the entire book of Jonah in the first week. We're going through the entire book, chapter by chapter of Jonah, these next few weeks. And there's a purpose to this. right? When we read chapter 2, we can better understand what chapter 2 is about when we see how it fits into this literary context, right? How it fits into the surrounding chapters and into the overall story. And so if we're following the narrative here, by the end of chapter 2... Jonah expresses a gratitude towards God in the form of a psalm of thanksgiving. The very next chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah, uh, so God says the same thing to Jonah again, and this time, uh, you know, arise and go, and this time Jonah obeys. And that's great. But though Jonah was grateful for his own deliverance, and he does obey, this change of heart was at best partial. Because chapter 3, Nineveh now responds to the gospel by repenting, and then God relents. In in chapter 4, you would expect, right, that the right response would be some uh, conclusion of Jonah rejoicing over what God would rejoice over, that these people have turned to God for deliverance, for salvation. But that's not how the story ends, is it? Instead of rejoicing, there is grumbling. There's complaining that Jonah did what he was called to do but he wasn't happy about it. In fact, he seems more than unhappy. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly 
and he was angry. So knowing all of this, you have to ask, what is the point of chapter 2? Why is it placed here? The psalm's placement teaches us that duty done without delight in what God desires is lacking. Many of us, as we have gone through our vision frame, you've heard me speak and and share about our motives, right, our core values, and one of them being what? Servant-hearted. Because many of us are servant-hearted. Many of you are serving, right, trying to seek to serve like Jesus rather than to be served, serving in children's ministry and youth ministry and VBS and worship team and so on and so forth, right? And that is amazing. But with each of our motives, we've We've paired them off with a mark too, right? What does it mean for us to be shaped and to, for the Holy Spirit to be working in us? And so if we are servant-hearted, then what is the corresponding mark? It is that we are serving with joy. Right? Where does our duty become our delight? And why is this important? Because we could go through the motions. We could, yeah, even in our hearts, be servant-hearted, and we could go through all these things, do what God has called us to do. But deep down, maybe we're doing it without joy. We're doing it with grumbling, with complaining. And so we have this mark to remind us that it is God working in us, sanctifying the very depths of our hearts, those very deep, dark areas that we might not just serve, not just be servant-hearted, but be serving with joy, delighting in what God is doing in and through us. And so here in Jonah specifically, what does God desire and delight in? What God desires is for the nations to worship him, even those who may be different or those who may be our enemies. Right? You see, it's all the more striking for Jonah to have first experienced God's grace in the fish, which he did not deserve, and then to think that that grace cannot be also extended and shared to his enemies, which he thinks they don't deserve it. And so, sure, he obeyed, but he took no joy in doing so. In fact, he was angry. Chapter 2 is placed here to show us, right, if we've really experienced God's grace, we would say, man, wow, I I don't deserve this. This is a gift, this salvation, this grace is awesome. There's nothing I could do to earn it. I am humbled by the fact that God would so lovingly offer me this free gift of salvation to me. He would pay the cost for me, for us. And then what is the outcome of that? We would look at others and say, when we stand before God, I am no better than they are that they need God's grace as much as me. And I can be part of that delivering, not saving them, but being an instrument to bring that good news to them. Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, he draws this nice distinction between a works-based religion and a grace-given gospel. So two quotes that I'll read for you. First, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. 
a grace-given gospel, though. My identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by sheer grace am I what I am, so I can't look down on those who believe or pray something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. Which sounds like Jonah. Which sounds like the one who has experienced grace. Bill Robinson in his book, Incarnate Leadership, said this, that beneficiaries of grace should be benefactors of grace. This is what chapter 2 and its placement in Jonah is driving, that gratitude grows out of an experience of God's grace in a realization of our predicament. Gratitude will grow into an extension, sharing of God's grace to others, one that is joyfully obeyed, not begrudgingly followed. And so what does this mean for us today? That we, that we have a duty that must be also done with delight. That we ought to take joy in extending God's grace to others. And that is driven by a reflection of God's grace to us. That we ought to rejoice when someone comes to Christ. That we, we rejoice and we participate in our church's baptism service. And it doesn't matter if you don't know the person that is getting baptized, right? Because that person now is now your brother and sister in Christ and is part of this family in Christ, right? That's part of our mission statement, right? Bridging cultures to build a family in Christ that is united right, by our faith in Jesus. We ought to take delight, freedom, joy in talking about the gospel, about God's work in our own life, celebrating that. Rejoicing in that. That doesn't mean that it's easy, right? But I can tell you that if we earnestly continue to seek to do it with delight, it does become easier over time. So the right response to God's grace is gratitude. It is the right response because we deserve death due to our disobedience, but instead we received life. And that gratitude, right, grows out of an experience of God's grace and a realization of our predicament. That gratitude, hopefully, we pray, would also grow into extending that God's grace, a God's grace to others. Again, doing it in joyful obedience, not with grumbling or not begrudgingly following it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give thanks first and foremost because of your gift of grace to us. We give thanks as we reflect in our own lives and the ways in which your grace has touched us, has shown us mercy, has given us a new life. We pray that this would not just be something that we know, something that we memorize, something that we rehearse, but something that would shape our lives, shape our attitudes, our convictions, that we might allow the gospel uh, to shape our lives and that we might live in light of this good news and that others would as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.